This is a production of WEDU-PBS, Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota. Florida This Week is made possible in part by support from the Tampa Bay Times. Coming up next, a recording about an alleged Russian hit squad roils a local congressional race. I call up my Russian and Ukrainian hit squad, and within 24 hours, they're sending me pictures of her disappearing. Is that red tide outbreak linked to the Piney Point phosphate spill? Environmentalists try to protect two giant tracts of undeveloped land and the mystery surrounding lost graves of African Americans. All this and more right now on Florida This Week. Welcome back. This week, just in time for summer, Red Tide was recorded along the shores of Manatee, Hillsborough, and Pinellas counties. The fish kills were the worst in Pinellas County, but this outbreak is not as bad as the one in 2018 that caused massive killing of marine life and had a huge negative impact on the Gulf Coast tourist economy. Also, a new GOP candidate for Congress in Pinellas County was secretly recorded promising to send a Russian and Ukrainian hit squad to kill his Republican primary opponent. In a secretly recorded phone call with a fellow Republican activist, William Braddock repeatedly warned that activist to not support GOP candidate Anna Paulina Luna in the Republican primary for the seat now held by Democrat Charlie Crist. The reason for calling in the hit squad? Braddock claims Luna is not conservative enough. How do we make her go? Uh, I call up my... Russian and Ukrainian hit squad, and within 24 hours, they're sending me pictures of her disappearing. Oh, dang. No, I'm not joking. Like, this is beyond, this is beyond my control at this point. So it's really bad. Politico, which broke the story, says Braddock would not confirm that it was his voice on the recording. He also suggested the recording may have even been altered and edited. According to the Tampa Bay Times, Luna obtained a temporary restraining order against Braddock last week. Governor Ron DeSantis said this week that Florida law enforcement officers will soon go to Texas and Arizona to help with border control. DeSantis' announcement came during a news conference in Pensacola after the governors of Texas and Arizona requested help from other states to battle illegal immigration at the Mexico border. It's unclear how many law enforcement officers will be sent from Florida or what kind of training they will receive. And a new task force was announced this week with funding from the legislature to find missing burial sites of African Americans around Florida and to report to the governor by January 1st. According to estimates made by state and federal archaeologists, there are nearly 3,000 abandoned African-American cemeteries across the state of Florida that have not been yet identified. But now with this task force, we find our chance as a state to work together to think through the best ways to honor those who were lost but who should never, ever be forgotten. This comes as there's a controversy over a long-missing African-American cemetery in Tampa, which may be under the Italian Club Cemetery parking lot. Buried there, along with a thousand other people in long-lost graves, could be a major figure in Florida's history. 
Former State Senator Robert Meacham, who rose from slavery to eventually help write Florida's Constitution and establish the state's public school system. Community leaders want the city of Tampa to help find the lost graves. Well, joining us in the studio now are two authorities on black history and civil rights. Ray Arsenault is the John Hope Franklin Southern History Professor Emeritus at USF St. Pete. He's written extensively about the civil rights movement, and his books include Freedom Riders and books about Arthur Ashe and singer Marian Anderson. And Fred Hearns is the black history curator of the Tampa Bay History Center. He's a longtime journalist, author, and community activist, and has led more than 300 tours of historic black neighborhoods in Tampa. Ray and Fred? Welcome to Florida this week. Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Fred, has the city of Tampa come forward? Are they willing to spend some money to look for these lost graves at the Italian Club Cemetery? Well, so far, I have not heard of the city making a financial commitment to a search at the Italian Club site. The city has made a commitment of $50,000 at the Zion Cemetery site, which was the first one that was uh, recovered and that the Tampa Bay Times wrote about and Ray Reed did research. And so that was the first one to surface. So the city, uh, Hillsborough County government, as well as the state of Florida have committed $50,000. That will get, uh, get us started toward uh, trying to, to give some closure to what happened at the Zion site. But the site at the Italian Club, I have not heard yet of the city making a uh, commitment. And Robert Meacham, uh, we don't know where he's buried, a significant figure in Florida history. Exactly. And Robert Meacham, we do know, uh, based on the research uh, that has been done uh, by the Times, he is buried at what is now, now known as the Italian Club Cemetery in East Tampa. Uh, Robert Meacham's daughter-in-law, Christina Meacham, is the woman that, who, for whom a school was named, elementary school, uh, in the Central Park Village area. And, uh, and the Meacham name is known throughout the state of Florida as an outstanding legislator uh, and uh, leader of the black community. So we hope the Meacham School will be rebuilt. We hope that others <coughs> will step forward and help finance <coughs> the ground truthing and the other research that needs to be done at the College Hill site to find not only where Mr. Meacham is buried, but other African-Americans. So, Ray, how did we lose these people? I mean, how did we lose the sight of where these people were buried? And you point out, too, that at the Tropicana Dome in St. Petersburg, there still may be some unexplored graves there under the baseball stadium. When they built the stadium, uh, they, they removed the whole so-called gas plant neighborhood, and there were 18 black churches and three black cemeteries on that site. And I think they, they tried their best, but I don't think they were careful enough to get all of the, all of the graves. At least that's the suspicion. It's a pretty strong suspicion among members of the community. And uh, we'll see if tr Tropicana site gets redeveloped, whether they'll take the time to, to find out what's underneath that parking lot. Mm -hmm. Ray, I want to ask you about critical race theory. Um, it's, it's, this week in Kissimmee, the Republicans had a gathering and it was one of the main talking points of Senator Rick Scott and Senator Ted Cruz and others. They were deriding critical race theory. In my question last week to one of our Republican guests, and I'll ask you this this week, how do you, where do you draw the line between black history and critical race theory? Is that line easy to find? Well, it's probably not easy to find, uh, although I, I would say of all the crazy things that have happened in the last 
four or five years, this controversy over critical race theory may be the most uh, ludicrous, frankly. Uh, you know, the, the term is probably an unfortunate one. It's kind of like defunding the police. It's not, no, probably not the best political choice. And it came out of the law schools in the, 19, in the 1970s. Derek Bell at Harvard and a number of other uh, professors developed out of critical legal theory, it was called, and they did critical race theory. And that's why they used the, the term. But really, all it is is uh, an emphasis on institutional racism. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the notion that uh, it's not just individuals who are prejudiced. It's a, a much deeper reality. It's kind of a social, cultural construct within a, a society. And it's, it's, I mean, it's intellectually unassailable. I mean, I, I'd say of the thousands of scholars, teachers who, who specialize in this area, I, 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 I'd be hard-pressed to find one or two who would be critical of the concept or of critical race theory. So, I mean, there are arguments about the details, certainly, but it's sort of like, uh, you know, you, you can't see the oxygen in the air, but it's there, and you couldn't breathe without it, and that's the institutional structure of racism is a fundamental part of American history and of African-American history, and I don't think anyone who's ever studied it could doubt it. So it seems to me that this attack, which is a manufactured one, I believe, is really not so much bigotry as it's demagoguery. Uh, it's hard for me to believe that Governor DeSantis, who has a Harvard degree after all and is a well-educated person, uh, it's willful ignorance. I mean, he must know full well um, that what he's doing is uh, intellectually absurd, uh, but he seems to think that it's politically, politically advantageous to him. Let me ask you about an op-ed that you wrote in the Tampa Bay Times, co-wrote with Howard Simon, the former ACLU director in Florida, and you say, the assault on democracy and voting rights is so widespread, taking place in so many states, young volunteers can devote a summer or perhaps even a full year working for democracy where voting rights are under attack. And you list the states where that's happening, Florida, Texas, Georgia, Arizona, Arkansas, Montana, Indiana, Iowa, and Ohio. You say that these young volunteers can organize to staff offices, register voters, assist with the application process to vote by mail, staff phone banks, and drive people to the polls. Everyone can be involved in resisting the metastasizing of undemocratic voting laws. You were here a few months ago. You said you were pretty optimistic about the future. This was before January 6th, before Florida voted for these new voting laws that restrict some access to voting. You're calling for a new freedom summer. Yes, I probably was too optimistic at the beginning of the year. Um, you know, I've been spending the last few months writing a biography of John Lewis, and uh, part of it that I've been working on recently is about Freedom Summer in Mississippi in 1964. I feel like I'm sort of reliving it, and uh, uh, it's it sort of a coincidence, really, that Howard and I wrote this piece on, on proposing a new Freedom Summer, but it was one of the turning points in American political history, a kind of new conception of citizen politics. This is 1964, volunteers from the North head yeah. to the South where blacks are being denied the yeah. right to register to vote and vote. That's right. It was almost a thousand college students that were trained in, in Oxford, Ohio, and then they came down to Mississippi and they worked in the freedom schools and they registered people to vote. And uh, the, the idea was that bl black people had been murdered uh, in huge numbers in Mississippi for generations. And they thought it was kind of a dangerous strategy, but if they put white kids there as well, and they were in harm's way, and people could see these are like the kids next door, uh, then maybe the, the national public opinion would, would pay attention. And of course, the, what they didn't expect is that you know, Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, three of the volunteers, were murdered on the first day. Of course, it took the whole summer to find, find their bodies, but that, that became a, you know, a huge, huge controversy. And there was 
a lot of disillusioning experiences for the individual volunteers. They saw the hatred and the, the hurt in, in black society in Mississippi. But what came out of it is this new conception of kind of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And so the anti-war movement and, you know, the gay rights movement and the women's movement, they all kind of use Freedom Summer, along with the Freedom Rides earlier, as one of the templates for this kind, this kind of politics. So we were hoping that we could have this again. I mean, I, I, probably, we're probably in a more dangerous situation right now, actually, sadly, than they were in 1964. Fred, is that the way you view it? I mean, with the laws passed in, in Tallahassee recently to uh, curtail uh, some voting rights, that you agree that, that, uh, that this is an assault on, on democracy and on voting freedom? Uh, I believe so. And, and I do have to say that uh, Dr. Arsenault hit the, hit the nail on the head. It almost feel, feels like we're reliving some of the battles that many people thought had already been decided. Uh, the new assault on voting rights, which I think is what it is, uh, it just takes us back <clears throat> to John Lewis and Bloody Sunday and the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. So uh, a lot of people feel like uh, this assault is, is coming on the heels of uh, Barack Obama being president for eight years uh, and that a lot of people feel like uh, this is sort of payback, if you will. That's what I hear in the streets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One last question. Juneteenth has become a national holiday, and the entire Florida delegation, Republicans and Democrats, apparently said okay to Juneteenth becoming a national holiday. Fred, did you ever see a, something happen this quickly, so fast? I mean, this is a positive thing. Well, it is a positive thing, but yes, I have seen legislation which actually had more teeth happen uh, in a week when Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. One week later, we had finally had a fair housing bill, which had been lobbied and discussed and debated back and forth for years uh, in Congress. So the federal government uh, can act swiftly when there's a will to do so. And right now, on the heels of George Floyd's murder and all of the protests from last summer and this awakening of people to issues that have been here all along, and feeling like we've got to do something. We've got to deliver something to show that uh, we're on the side of, of the people who have been oppressed and denied rights for so many years, African-Americans. So yes, I have seen the federal government move rapidly when there was a will to do so. But after all, it's, it's a holiday that really does not address Florida history. And that's what I'm all about. So <laughs> I support Juneteenth, but it really doesn't uh, uh, direct people's attention to our history here in the state of Florida and Tampa. Fred, Ray, I wish we had more time, but Fred <laughs> Hearns, thanks a lot. Ray Arsenault, thank you very much. Thanks for being on Florida this week. You're welcome. A state proposal would extend State Road 56 in Pasco County through the Lower Green Swamp and the Upper Hillsboro Preserves, two large tracts of undeveloped land totaling about 22,000 acres. The new road would connect southeast Pasco County to Polk County near the northern Hillsborough County line. Mary Ellis Smith is a Hillsborough County Commissioner and has been a longtime advocate for the environment and for smart growth. She's also a fourth generation Floridian. And Mary Ellis Smith, welcome to Florida this week. Great to have you here. Thank you. Um, it's great to be here. Good to see you again, Rob. Thanks. Uh, you said in the uh, Tampa Bay Times the other day that you were incensed about this idea. Now, you're a Hillsborough County Commissioner. 
why do, should you care about a road being built through Pasco County? The road uh, would, the, the route that concerns us is a proposed route that would run along kind of the Hillsborough-Pasco border and then dip into some um, of our most valuable ELAP preserved. ELAP is our environmental lands acquisition and uh, protection uh, management um, arm. And we have um, in our county spent a long time, a lot of uh, tax dollars and uh, community volunteer efforts, as well as staff efforts in acquiring and preserving this land, um, which uh, uh, hooks up with and connects with other preserves. You mentioned 20 some thousand acres, but it's actually part of about 150,000 acres of wildlife preserves owned by the county and the state that have been strung together from the green swamp uh, all the way through our county. And this um, proposed road would sever the connections and and uh, sever the wildlife corridor as well as the very important wetland uh, and watershed connections of uh, uh, that the water follows from the green swamp all the way to the Hillsborough River, which is the main drinking water source for the city of Tampa. There are enormous um, uh, environmental impacts. Um, the state's own reports that they've been working on for uh, two years and produce hundreds and hundreds of pages of reports in, uh, include several pages listing the uh, threatened and endangered wildlife that is on there. Everything from uh, bald eagles to uh, Florida black bear and uh, very rare wild orchids. Um, so a road going through there would, you know, it increase uh, the mortality for these animals, as well as um, cutting through this watershed and, and interrupting the flow of water um, in this important watershed from the Green Swamp to the Hillsborough River. I want to ask you about a related issue, and this is just to the uh, southwest of this area uh, the, the, where the road is being proposed. You, the University of South Florida in Tampa has, uh, has called for proposals to develop uh, the USF Forest Preserve, uh, which is nearby, and it's along the Hillsborough River, uh, and they want to make money from the Forest Preserve. Uh, this is pristine uh, land. It, about, there's about 550 acres of wetlands, and there's a, almost 800 acres of, of uh, total land. What do you think of that proposal to, to try to develop that part of Hillsborough County? Well, it's awful. I mean, this is also very valuable part of this ecosystem and uh, wildlife corridors and wetland system in the same area as you as you mentioned, and um, the state has owned this land for many many years and uh, held it in preservation as it should be, except for the golf course part. Um, but um, the state should be preserving this land. There have been some you know reactions in our county of uh, alarm that the state is now 
uh, talking about selling this off for development. Um, and and so uh, people in our county are saying, well, oh, maybe we should use our county ELAP dollars to uh, rush in and um, and and make sure that we buy this from them instead of letting developers buy it and and preserve it. Um, but and, and Commissioner, we're almost what, out of time. But is that a good idea? I mean, I, I take it no, you would support that. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, last resort this this land needs to be preserved by hook or by crook but what should be done is the state should continue preserving their own land i'm very concerned that if we use our county dollars to rescue them from this and and preserve this land that they've been preserving it could uh start a precedent of them threatening to develop their other state-owned preserves, uh, the Swift Mud Preserves and, and others in our county. All right. Well, and Commissioner- I think that we have to buy those as well. Commissioner, thanks a lot. I wish we had more time, but Commissioner Mariella Smith, thank you. Thank you. Thousands of dead fish have washed ashore this week onto Pinellas County beaches. This comes as red tide blooms have also been discovered in Manatee and Hillsborough counties. The blooms are drifting north along the coastline. It's hoped that the fish kills will dissipate in the coming days. It's uncertain if the cause is related to the recent release of 215 million gallons of polluted water from the Piney Point fertilizer plant in Manatee County. Ed Sherwood is the executive director of the Tampa Bay Estuary Program. His organization's main focus is using science to keep an eye on the health of Tampa Bay. And Ed Sherwood, welcome to Florida this week. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. So, Ed, do you think, or based on the science that you know, do you think that these fish kills that we're seeing in Pinellas County and the red tide blooms associated with it, uh, it can we trace that to Piney Point? Well, we know the, the red tide that we're observing now started to um, be observed in Tampa Bay at the end of April, and that was from tides and currents carrying uh, the bloom that was originating further south of us into our region. But we also know that excessive nutrients went into the bay uh, during our normal spring dry season. And those were a significant amount of nutrient loading going into the bay. And it's in areas where this red tide is interacting with our shorelines. So we know that these excessive nutrient loads are probably having, uh, 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 are contributing to probably the intensification of the blooms ever since it started being observed at the end of April in Tampa Bay. Would it be fair to say that you think that, that uh, the Piney Point disaster made things slightly worse or worse? That uh, we're still trying to understand with additional research and samples, uh, you know, the potential contribution. But as I mentioned, we didn't have a very um, significant rainfall, you know, through April, May of this year. That's our typical dry season. And the only significant nutrient load inputs into the bay during that time were from the Piney Point facility. So um, it is it is pretty much a uh, thing that would probably exasperate any algal blooms that have occurred uh, over that time period. And we've been seeing the cycling of different algal species ever since those discharges uh, took place in uh, early April. Let me ask you about those other sources of nutrients. What, what's, the, what's the main source of these nitrogen nutrients that are going into Tampa Bay that might cause or help amplify red tide blooms? Where is it coming from? Yeah, there's a variety of different sources, but they're the main sources that are contributing the most 
nutrient loads to Tampa Bay are from stormwater and atmospheric sources. So anytime it rains and washes off the land surfaces, we do get a significant nutrient loads going into the bay. And as I mentioned, we didn't get much rain over the April-May period. So um, the only other significant load during that time period was uh, from Piney Point. The other uh, sources through atmospheric deposition, both from when it rains and also just from dry deposition, it's called on the bay surface. It's just from the nitrogen contained in the air, and that could also be a contribution of nutrients to um, Tampa Bay and stormwater sources. Um, both of those are affected by emissions and more nitrous oxide emissions in the in the atmosphere. Well, Ed Sherwood, thanks a lot for coming on Florida this week, and we're going to keep an eye on it. Thank you for being on the program. Appreciate your time, and I appreciate everyone's interest in trying to reduce nutrient loads to our coastal water bodies. Thanks for joining us. You can see this and past shows online at wedu.org or on the PBS app. Stay safe. We'll see you next week, and have a happy Juneteenth. Florida This Week is a production of WEDU, who is solely responsible for its content.